Well, if you uh, have a Bible, I'd uh, invite you to turn to Zechariah chapter 6. Again, um, Zechariah, the second to last book in the Old Testament. Again, probably the easiest way to find it is to go to Matthew and then just go back a little bit. There's Malachi and there's Zechariah. Um, If you are using a pew Bible or if you'd like to, our passage tonight can be found on page 1011. But again, Zechariah chapter 6. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 this evening. Again, Zechariah chapter 6. In verses 1 through 8, let us hear now God's word. God's word reads, Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, and the third white horses, And the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I asked and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven, after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north, and the white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, They were impatient to go and patrol the earth, and he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Would he write its truths on our hearts? Let us go again to him in prayer. Our Father, again, we pray that you would bless this time, and again, uh, I pray that you would help us to learn what you would have us to learn from your word, uh, for we know that it is meat and drink to us, that it is uh, for our own good, that we would grow in salvation by respect to your word. Would your word, Lord, do its work in us who believe? We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, as we continue on again in the book of Zechariah, I was about to say the book of Revelation, but... As we continue on again in the book of Zechariah, uh, we see what we've seen many times in this book, which is a series of visions. And we see here uh, this last in a series of visions, which really bookend the first part of the book of Zechariah. Uh, If you were to flip back to chapter 1 and the first vision that we went over after an introductory sermon uh, on uh, overview just of the book, Uh, The first vision starts off with four horses that Zechariah sees, and he sees them going about to patrol, and again, they want to go and patrol, and now we've had these visions in between, and we've had some strange visions for sure, especially last week with the giant scroll that's flying around and entering into houses sort of like the angel did back in Exodus uh, on the Passover, where if they didn't have the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, the angel of death would go in and and the firstborn son would die. So we saw that last week. And of course, there's the, the, uh, the basket with wickedness in it and the stork who comes to take it away. 
uh, to Babylon, and as they open the basket top, we find a woman inside, and her name is Wickedness. And we read these things, and we think, what in the world is going on uh, in these books? And uh, we have this tendency as we read books like Zechariah, and again, books like Revelation and Daniel, and oftentimes we stay away from these books because of these things, because they are odd. Uh, it's different to read about things like this than it is to read, for instance, in this morning, where we read Titus, where it's very straightforward. Older women act in this way and teach the younger women to do this. It's very easy to understand. And of course, we're coming to a different type of scripture, a different type of literature, uh, which is called apocalyptic literature. And it uses uh, symbolism and it uses vivid imagery really to give our minds or our mind's eye, a way of seeing the truth. So, again, uh, that is what is going on in our passage this evening. Now, again, I, I still recommend people not shy away from these books. And the reason I do that is even though some of the details of what we read and even what we read tonight can be a little difficult to understand or to know exactly what it is that uh, we're supposed to learn, and what this particular, for instance, tonight, what the mountains are symbolizing, uh, I still believe that the main message of the visions, including the main message of the vision we're going to see this evening, uh, they're pretty clear as we read through our Bibles uh, what it is that God wants us to learn and to take away from this. So again, my prayer and my argument sort of is that uh, we need not get lost in or get absorbed with looking at specific trees and miss the entire forest or the, the basic message of the book, uh, even though there's some details that for sure we can uh, not know what is going on. That doesn't uh, hurt us from reading the entire book or it shouldn't keep us from it. Now, just again, to, for a brief recap on Zechariah, um, we've, as we go through Nehemiah and everything, we're, I'm continuing to tell the story, but... God's people, one of the greatest things that ever happened in terms of a catastrophe, I guess I should say one of the worst things uh, that happened to God's people in the Old Testament is when they're exiled to Babylon. Uh, as you read the Old Testament, you realize God gets Abraham and calls him and sends him from Ur of the Chaldees to this promised land. And the people are in the promised land and then course they go down to Egypt and they're brought back and but they're told and they're brought into this land and they're told uh, that if they disobey that eventually God will send them back out of the promised land and that did happen and the temple was destroyed and it was a horrible horrible thing that even as we go to the New Testament and we read in Matthew chapter 1 about the genealogy of Jesus Christ we see these generations we see that one of the the markers that is put there by Matthew is the deportation of Babylon. This is huge in the life of the Jews, of the people who remembered being kicked out of the land that God had rescued them and brought them into, that God himself said that he was doing this because of their disobedience. And they didn't forget that, that they had been sent out of the land. You know, as we even look today uh, with Jews today, and they look back at the Holocaust and say, never again. And as we have a war going on now with Israel and uh, with Hamas and, and hopefully uh, de-escalating, although it certainly doesn't look that way. Uh, but um, as we see in here, never again. Well, if you went back to 
Jesus' time, and if you went back to the time of Zechariah, they'd say never again about this as well. Never again shall we be kicked out of the land because of our disobedience to our God. Uh, May we be faithful to our God that we not suffer the same fate that we had suffered before and be in this derision that we're now in. So God's people have been brought back because God is a merciful God, and they're here in the land, and again, they're saying never again, but as they come back to the land, they're going and doing the same sins and doing the exact same things that they had done, which caused God to kick them out of the land in the first place again. They, in particular, in Zechariah, they've forgotten to rebuild the temple, what God had brought them back to do in the first place. And again, they were expecting a golden age where the temple would be rebuilt and all the nations come flooding in and all this is going on. Instead, they come back and begin to rebuild the temple and they face some persecution, and, and they give up. And then time has passed, and now they're, they're kind of caught up with other things and, and rebuilding their own homes, and they're not so much concerned with the temple. So again, God raises up Haggai and Zechariah to encourage the people and to remind the people of his promise, even though it looks difficult and it's not the way you expected it to be, God promises that he's with his people here in rebuilding the temple and as they are doing his, his will. Again, if we flip back and if we went back to Haggai and read, went through Haggai, his preaching is very plain. It's very obvious. He basically tells them, you need to repent of your sins. You need to repent of your unbelief and focusing on yourselves and your own homes and get to work on what God has called you to do, which was to rebuild the temple. And he says it in words like that. It's very easy to understand. He speaks very plainly. Obviously, Zechariah is not quite the same. Zechariah speaks in these visions that God gave him over one night, these different visions that we see. But again, it's still the same God who is speaking to his people, and it's basically the same message of being faithful because God is faithful even when we can't see that he's being faithful and we face difficulties. So again, we're going to see two things in particular in our passage this evening which are always true of God, and so for they, uh, therefore they apply to us as well as they did to the people in Zechariah's day. And the first thing we're going to see, which is true, and we should know as good Presbyterians, is that God works in providence. God is always working. God is sovereign and working in providence. So again, even when it seems like God is not working, even when we don't feel like God is working, I would say particularly, uh, at least in terms of comforting us, when we're going through suffering in difficult times, but also when we're going through times where it seems like God is silent and he's not, he seems to be uh, asleep at the wheel. Uh, He's not. Uh, God is always working. So again, God is sovereign and working through his providential rule. And secondly, We're going to see the truth, which comes up in the Bible over and over and over again. And again, this may not be a a favorite thing for us to think about, but it's used as an encouragement in the Bible for God's people. It's that this truth that God will absolutely bring judgment upon those who are unrepentant, and in particular on those who have afflicted his people. If they do not repent, God absolutely will bring judgment upon them. So again, we're going to see that God is always at work uh, through providence, and then we'll see that God will bring judgment upon 
those who have afflicted his people and refuse to repent. So first we see that God is at work. And as I just mentioned in starting off a minute ago, uh, we've seen some strange uh, passages that we've gone through uh, in the book of Zechariah. And as we move on tonight, we see uh, another passage which is uh, a little strange as well. And as we look in chapter 6, and it starts off, we see some horses, the first thing we see. They show back up from chapter 1, but this time we see that they have chariots behind them uh, that they are pulling, and they come out between two mountains. Again, chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 1 says, again, so again, another uh, vision that Zechariah has this, this long night. He says, again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. Now, there have been, I've read myself, and uh, just in my brief reading compared to the literature out there, you have all sorts of guesses about what these mountains are. What is Zechariah seeing uh, in these mountains? And uh, I think if we were to go on a long discourse on these mountains that Zechariah sees and these chariots coming out from the middle of it, we'd be doing uh, exactly what I said at the beginning I think we shouldn't do, which is uh, miss the, the forest for the trees. Uh, I don't know exactly what these mountains are. Um, I tend to agree with, I think, probably most people that it's probably a picture of the heavenly Mount Zion uh, of heaven and that you have mountains and they're, they're strong and bronze was a, a, a rare uh, commodity at this time and it shined very brightly and was very strong and just a picture of heaven. And we see these horses coming out from, from heaven, really from God's presence. And this is what uh, Zechariah sees here. Uh, in verse 3, we see the color of the four horses. Verse 3 says that, I'm sorry, starting verse 2, uh, there are red horses, and then there are black horses, and then there are white horses, and then there are dappled, or sometimes uh, translated as gray uh, horses. And uh, we see also uh, the main thing about all four of them, even though they're different colors, is that they are all strong. Now, if you've read through the book of Revelation before, uh, this might sound familiar to you, or it should sound familiar to you, these horses uh, that are going around. And we have the, the four horses of the apocalypse sometimes you hear about in, in modern kind of nomenclature and, and culture, the four horses. Well, that's because if you read the book of Revelation and you're wondering what on earth are all these symbols or anything that are going on, uh, John, as he wrote Revelation, was a Jew who really, really, really knew his Old Testament really well. And John goes back into Isaiah and into Zechariah and into Daniel and other books constantly to take imagery from there. And it shows back up again in our one New Testament book that has the same kind of, you know, to us kind of strange uh, pictures and so forth, which is the book of Revelation. But uh, in the book of Revelation, in again, chapter six, and this is not some divine coincidence or um, the chapters and verses came about later, but it is chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 in Revelation as well, as we just went through, we see almost the exact same thing happen in the book of Revelation. Uh, in Revelation, and obviously I put down 
the wrong chapter because it's not chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Um, as I look there, I can see that that is the wrong uh, one that I have there. And I do have down that it's 6, 1 through 8, but it is not. So <laughs> um, in Revelation chapter, I'm going to find it in a second, but we're going to see that horses come out from heaven. It's with the scrolls that are being opened, and that horses come out, and they are sent out from the Lord uh, to go out over the face of the earth and to bring judgment upon the peoples. And we will see that they are the same uh, color as we just had here, and ultimately they're doing the same thing. So I will... Uh, find that in a second. I apologize for that. But uh, I'm not finding them right now. Anyway, it's definitely not uh, chapter 6 like I have in here. But as we look at, uh, as we hear about, because I can't find it, but Revelation chapter 6, we have the same message here in Zechariah going on, which is that God is sending out his messengers, which are almost certainly angels, to carry out judgment upon those who have, um, who, have, uh, who have persecuted his people. So have persecuted his people. And uh, you know what? I was wrong this entire time. It is Revelation chapter 6. I just didn't read far enough to see that it is talking about horses right there. So again, I should have stuck with my guns there at the beginning. Revelation chapter 6. So again, written... 600 years later, last book almost certainly in the Bible written, and listen what John says. I just did that so y'all could turn there uh, and be there at the same time as me. But in Revelation chapter 6, it says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. Of course, talking about the risen, glorious, reigning Lord Jesus Christ, and he's opening up the scroll and the seals on it. And when he opens each one, a new judgment comes It says, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And he's calling for somebody, basically, if you, like you're looking at a stage, a play, and somebody's coming onto the scene now, into the, onto stage. And it says in verse two, and I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. So again, a conqueror here. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So again, this judgment we see here is God really taking off the restraint of people from one another, and we see people fighting with one another uh, more and more. In verse 5, it says, When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and his rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. So again, here we see that uh, inflation and economic turmoil has come, and these things are coming upon the earth. And then we see in verses 7 and 8, it says, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth 
to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So what does this mean? Uh, What is going on? Well, like I said, just as we see in Revelation chapter 6 and in Zechariah chapter 6, God is sending out his messengers, his angels, to bring judgment upon the peoples. Now, this would be important for the people in Zechariah's day because it again seemed like God had forgotten about them. They had been brought back to the land, and now they're being persecuted by the peoples around them. They're being mocked, and they're wondering where God is, and they're wondering if God cares. And God is letting Zechariah know in this vision that he does care, and he's sending out his army, if you will, these angels, to go and carry out his will upon the earth. Now, back in Zechariah, we know who these horses are uh, because he tells us. Uh, Zechariah, like us, uh, wonders what in the world is going on when he sees these strange things. And if you look at verse 4, Zechariah asks the angel, as Zechariah has these uh, visions, there's this angel who's with him. And like John does in the book of Revelation, he often asks him, what is this that I'm looking at? What is this supposed to mean? And the angel here tells him, after he says, what are these, my Lord? In verse 5, it says, the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country, the white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. And then he says, when the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he says, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. So again, we see that they're in God's presence. If you look back in verse uh, 5, it says that they're going after They've been presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. So they're in God's presence. They're his tools. I don't mean that in a negative way. But they're his instruments for carrying out his will. And he sends them out. And then we see the extent of this. As they go to all the earth. That's what it means by the four winds of the earth. They're going throughout the earth to carry forth, again, God's judgments. The same thing we see happening in the book of Revelation So what does this mean for us? Why do we care in 2023 uh, about this message from about 500 and something uh, BC? What does this mean to us? Again, it means that God is sovereign in everything. And he's sovereign not just with the Jews 500 whatever years before the birth of Christ. He's sovereign in your life as well. He's working in your life. He's working in my life. He's working in the big things and in the small things. We have in insurance and other things still, I believe, as I looked it up, I found it. I couldn't believe that this hasn't been phased out in terms of it being too too offensive to some people or or whatnot. But in the insurance uh, world, that we still have things deemed acts of God, uh, that you could have insurance for acts of God, for floods and tornadoes and earthquakes and and uh, so forth. And these unforeseen circumstances that can't be predicted are still referred to as acts of God because they're not somebody doing something, getting in their car and driving too fast and crashing it. They're something that nobody could have predicted. And again, they're rightly referred to as acts of God. 
However, in the Bible, in a, in a very real sense, everything is an act of God. Uh, the Bible does not just teach that God is active when big things happen and everything else. He's kind of hands off and just sort of looking on and wondering what's going to happen. Uh, as we believe that God is sovereign, it means that God works in all things. Uh, God is active in all things. Uh, now, again, the Bible teaches just as much that we are still responsible individuals, that we make choices. Those are real choices. We're not puppets on a string. We're not automatons that are just doing God's bidding. And uh, However, uh, God is still sovereign over our choices. Uh, somehow those two truths are both true at the same time. We make real choices and are responsible for them, and God is completely in control of them at the same time. So we can never use it as an excuse that God made me do it, or the devil made me do it. And we can never fall into despair and wonder, where is God, or God doesn't know what's going on, or God is playing catch-up catch up or something like that. He's not. Uh, both those things are true. We don't have a deist God as Dr. Kelly used to say, most Christians are deists who believe that God is really hands-off and just sort of watching what's going on. Our God is active in our lives. And we know that when large things happen, but again, in the mundane things of life, where it's not as obvious that God is there, God is there. And that is where we as believers need to continue to walk by faith, even when it doesn't seem like God is near or it seems that he is left he has not left. So again, God is active in all things. Secondly, we see that God will punish his enemies, the enemies of his people. If they do not repent, God will punish this. Now, this is a, a somewhat of a controversial statement, perhaps. Uh, as Samuel and the younger crowd would say, this is a hot take, uh, but that God will punish his enemies and the enemies of his people. And this is probably the hot take part or the controversial statement is uh, that in scripture, this is used, uh, given to God's people or stated for God's people in order to encourage them, uh, to encourage them and give them the strength and stamina and perseverance needed to carry on. Uh, realizing that the, those who do not repent, God will justly repay. Now, if you look again in verses 6 through 8, uh, the horses go throughout the earth, and they're eager to go out. Again, when you look at verse 7, when the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. Really, the picture is of these horses kind of uh, kicking, or whatever horses do with their heels when they're ready to go, and they're snorting their noses. They're ready to go and, and patrol the earth and to do the Lord's bidding. They want to go out. And if you notice, uh, they mainly go towards the north, although it does tell us earlier that they go to the four winds of the earth. They go everywhere. But in uh, verse 8, the last verse says, Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. And again, that might seem kind of strange, but the north country here is almost certainly symbolic for Babylon. Uh, if you know the geography of Israel, um, Babylon's really pretty much due east of where Israel is. However, you've got a gigantic desert between the two of them. 
And it's not like today where you just jump in an airplane, you can fly straight over it in a few hours and you're there. You had to walk, and as you did so, you had to go, you would dare not go across this desert, you're going to die. Uh, you go along the rivers, the, the Jordan River, and eventually you get to the Euphrates and the Tigris Rivers, and eventually, after months, you get to Babylon. So when Israel's enemies would come, traditionally, they'd come from the north, because unless it was Egypt, all the other countries, they couldn't come across this huge desert. Israel really had a natural border there, and they still to this day, once you get into Jordan and slightly past it, nobody really lives there, because it's pure desert. Uh, but in the Bible, we'll see oftentimes, and even in the New Testament, that God's enemies are often talked about as coming from the north, because that's the direction that they came from, as they came from the north, because that was really the only direction they could come from. So again, these horses go to the north, and then we read that God, that these horses have gone and made God's spirit at rest uh, in the north country. And that's a, a strange sort of thing to look at, but what it's really telling us is that God was upset. Uh, again, he's using what's called anthropomorphic language here, where he's, he's uh, using language that we can understand, but uh, God is not okay with the suffering of his people. God does not just sit idly back as his people are persecuted for the sake of Christ. Uh, as his people were taken to Babylon, yes, in one sense, God sent them there for sure. But at the same time, the Babylonians were guilty because they were going and doing it because they wanted to show they're the biggest and strongest kingdom in the world. So they went and took them just as Assyria had before. Uh, they were a tool in a sense in God's hand, but at the same time, they decided to do it. And God was going to punish them for what they had done. So at the same time, people today, like the Chinese government, who persecutes people who want to fully follow Christ and not just the accepted CCP version of Christianity, which ultimately bows down to the state over Christ, or in North Korea, where Christians are killed mercilessly, or in Nigeria and countries like that, where we still have dozens of Christians pretty much every week who are slaughtered for being Christians. God does not sit idly by. And you know who the first people are who will tell you that that's the case and they know it's the case? Are the people who are being persecuted. They'll tell you that they know God is with them. They can feel his presence. And again, they don't even pray for the persecution to go away because Christ is there with them in the persecution. They pray for strength not to apostatize and give up and convert to being a Muslim in the case of Nigeria or to give in to the communists in China and North Korea. So the thing, I, what, what they take strength from is the fact that God does care. And God is at work in their lives. And also, the fact that God will punish those who have punished them. Now, this isn't some sort of ungodly vengeance and, and bloodlust, uh, but it's a teaching of the Bible. And it comes to the fact that God is a just God. And this enables people, including ourselves, when we may not be killed, that might be a reality somewhere in the future. I don't know, and I hope not. But it could be, but when people do mock you and when you're wronged, that you can still forgive and you can hope the best for them. But all the while, as the Bible teaches us to leave room for the vengeance of, for the Lord, for his vengeance, as he said that he will avenge, uh, because God is just and he will punish those who do not repent as is right. As David says in Psalm 7, if a man does not repent... God will wet his sword. 
He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. This is David. There's all sorts of psalms. These are God-inspired songs and prayers in the Bible that God inspired. And we're not just going around and wishing these things on people, but we are noticing that if people refuse to be forgiven, refuse to be reconciled, they deserve punishment, and God will punish. Now, sometimes people think this is an Old Testament sort of ethic in the New Testament. This doesn't line up with what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount and doing things like forgiving others and turning the other cheek. Now, you can turn the other cheek, and again, you can pray for one's forgiveness and also realize at the same time that if they do not uh, repent, that God will bring judgment upon them as they deserve. In fact, again, in Revelation chapter 6, and thankfully I have it printed here so I can't get lost even though I have the right thing on my, uh, on my manuscript here, but in Revelation chapter 6, the saints in heaven who have been killed for the sake of their testimony of Christ. Now, again, they're in glory. Uh, they're not still dealing with sinful passions and so forth. But after Jesus, the Lamb, opens the fifth seal, John sees under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And listen what they do. This starts in verse 10 of chapter 6 in Revelation. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Again, I don't think in glory that these saints who are there are still dealing with the sin. This isn't sin. This is actually uh, normal of them to ask God, how long before you're going to, to deal with them, the people who have slain uh, us? As we look out at wickedness in our world, whether that's in Israel or if that's in Africa or our own country, as we look at our government and other things and we just say, where, I mean, just be honest, when is God going to do something about this? Uh, it is comforting to me, at least, and I hope it is for you as well, to know that God is very much aware of everything. He's not asleep at the wheel, and if people do not repent, they absolutely will be judged. So we can pray for people, even like our president and other ones, that they do repent and are saved, and at the same time realize that if they do not repent, and those who are trying to hurt our children and other things with wicked things that are now taught, if they do not repent, they will absolutely face God's judgment. In Revelation chapter 16 and verse 6, when the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, those in heaven rejoice and say, they deserve it. And again, we need to remember with God's judgment, the Bible teaches nobody, no innocent person is judged. It's people who deserve judgment, who are judged. We just don't think that anybody deserves judgment is our problem. So again, lastly, what does this mean for us again? Well, again, just in, in summary, God is in control of everything and even the smallest details in your life. And again, hopefully this gives you encouragement, uh, especially when you're going through difficult times and God feels distant. He's not distant and he's not asleep at the wheel. And secondly and lastly, we can pray and we should and need to pray for our enemies and genuinely hope for their repentance. Um, as I just said a moment ago, as I look at what's going on in our culture and has been for the last five, ten years, 
or more, but in particular. Um, and I can't stand the wicked. I can, if I turn on the news or something, I can watch it for a few seconds before I have to turn it off because it upsets me so much. So, um, but I can pray that people are saved and genuinely mean it, knowing that in a sense they are blind to what they're doing and that if God had not opened my eyes, I also would not be able to see. Uh, however, at the same time, I know that if they do not repent, that God is not somebody who's just sitting there saying, well, you know, I just look the other way. No, God cares, and he will judge. Every sin will be judged. Again, it's either by Christ on the cross, or by grace those of us who believe, or they will ultimately pay at God's hand. So my prayer for us tonight is that we'll trust God, and that we'll be even encouraged, remembering that our God is just, and will set all things right when he comes back. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, um, We are glad that you are a merciful God, for if you were not merciful, Lord, none of us could stand. We are all justly condemned by you without uh, Christ in our stead. Uh, Lord, we do also rejoice that you are a just God. You only do what is right. Uh, Lord, everything you do is right. And Lord, we, having been made in your image, when we see wickedness, we want people to be punished. We want people to face the consequences that they deserve. And Lord, you are somebody who, when your grace is is rejected, you will judge them because you are good and you are just. So Lord, would you help us to not lose heart in a wicked world where justice seems to be so rare, uh, knowing that the one who is ultimately in charge uh, is still in charge and that you are utterly good. And Lord, that your timing is wise and perfect. May we walk by faith and not give up, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.